5:16. Luke chapter 5 and verse 16. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Last week we considered the the Lord and the leper which verses 12 to 15 explain to us and this morning we want to look at verse 16 after healing the leper and giving him instructions the Lord withdraws to a desolate place and prays I want to say to you that prayer is not easy even those who have been renowned as great warriors of prayer, admit that prayer is not easy. Martin Luther was confined to a place called Wartburg Castle. He was being kept there for his own safety. There were those who would kill him. So he was kept at Wartburg Castle in relative isolation and in secrecy, And from there, he wrote to a friend of his named Philip Melanchthon. And this is what he said. I sit here at ease, hardened and unfeeling. Alas, praying little, grieving little for the church of God, burning rather in the fierce fires of my untamed flesh. It comes to this. I should be a fire in the spirit. In reality, I am a fire in the flesh, with lust, laziness, idleness, sleepiness. It is perhaps because you have all ceased praying for me that God has turned away from me. For the last eight days, I have written nothing, nor prayed, nor studied, partly from self-indulgence, partly from another vexatious handicap. I really can't stand it any longer. Pray for me, I beg you. For in my seclusion here, I am submerged in sins. It's not easy. And so this morning, a, as a sympathetic fellow struggler, I want to speak to you about prayer. And specifically, I want to point you to the Lord Jesus at prayer. One of our hymns speaks of the Lord Jesus in this way, inspirer and hearer of prayer. The Lord Jesus is not only the one who enables us to pray, he is the hearer of prayers, but he's also the inspirer of prayers. And my hope is that this morning, as we look at Jesus at prayer, that he will be the inspirer of prayer to us, and that we'll walk away from this message awestruck at the privilege of prayer and rededicated to the practice of prayer. You know, it must have been with a sense of wonder that Ananias heard the words of the Lord Jesus in reference to that great persecutor of the, of the church, Saul of Tarsus. Jesus said, 
behold, he is praying. The disciples, however, had they, in our passage, had they followed the Lord Jesus into the wilderness, what awe would have gripped them as they beheld the holy sight of Jesus speaking to his Father? What awe would have struck them as they witnessed the sacred moment of fellowship between God and his Son. And that is surely holy ground where Jesus prays. And this morning, we venture to tread on that holy ground. And we allow our gaze to fall upon the Lord Jesus at prayer. What I want to do is to point out several truths about the Lord Jesus at prayer and then seek to draw from each truth a lesson for us. And the first point is this. The first, first truth is that Jesus prays. Jesus prays. But he, the Lord Jesus, he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Now we're not surprised that Jesus would come apart from the busyness of his ministry and spend time in communion with his Father. We're not surprised we would expect this of the Son of the living God. Now we read in John chapter 1 verse 1 these words, In the beginning was the Word, and by Word John means Jesus, in his pre-incarnate state. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So this extraordinary text in John 1.1 tells us two things at least. It speaks of Jesus' equality with the Father. He was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It tells us of his equality with God. It also tells us of his communion with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That's a marvelous word, the word with. It means face to face. It speaks of intimacy. It speaks of communion and interaction and fellowship. The Son, then, has a close and intimate relationship with the Father and with the Spirit. And that intimacy is sustained before the foundation of the world, before anything existed. When there was God in solitary splendor, the Son had an intimate relationship with the Father and with the Spirit. We realize then that God is independent. God doesn't need us. He didn't create us because he needed us. He needs someone to express his love to. He needs someone to pour his affections upon. And so he has to create human beings like us. No, that's absolutely wrong. God doesn't need us at all. He is independent. And he exists in solitary splendor and pure happiness before the creation of anything. God is eternally happy in himself 
And there is joy and fellowship in the intertrinitarian relationships. The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and the Son and the Father love the Spirit. There is intertrinitarian joy and fellowship before there was anything else. And so prior to his incarnation and prior to the creation of the universe, Jesus enjoys fellowship with his father. And so we expect that when he comes into the world, he should withdraw himself from uh, all the busyness of life and maintain that relationship and continue that fellowship and spend time with his father. And we get a glimpse of that fellowship in John 17. In John 17, the, fa- uh, the Lord Jesus is praying to his Father. We call it the high priestly prayer. And we get a glimpse of the wonder and the awesome intimacy between Father and Son. Look at John 17, verse 20. John 17, verse 20. I do not ask, that these, ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. There are so many things there that are awe-inspiring, but focus on this, that between Father and Son, Before there was anything else, there was between them love and glory. And that extraordinary communion continues when Jesus enters into the world and becomes a man so that he might save us. We're not surprised then that Jesus withdraws and Jesus prays because that's what he's always done. Prayer is talking to God. And the Son always talks to his Father. And the Father always talks to his Son. There is always loving communion and fellowship between Father and Son. And when we see him in this world, of course, he prays. Now, he loves his Father. Now, the lesson. There's a lesson for us. And the lesson is that Christians must pray. Christians must pray. All true Christians. All Christians who legitimately own that name. I mean, they're legitimately called Christians. They're true Christians. They're not Christians in name only. They will pray. It is unthinkable that Jesus should not pray to his Father. It is unthinkable that the people of Jesus should not pray to his Father. 
In Acts chapter 9 and verse 11, the first thing that is said of the saved Saul of Tarsus is, behold, he's praying. One of the Puritans said that prayer is the first thing with which a righteous life begins and the last thing with which it ends. How do you know a baby is alive? Well, you hear the cries. How do you know the babe in Christ is alive? Well, you hear the prayers. John Bunyan said, if you're not a praying person, you're not a Christian. One of our hymns says, prayer is the Christian's vital breath, the Christian's native air. Martin Luther wrote that as it is the business of tailors to make clothes and of cobblers to mend shoes, so it is the business of Christians to pray. That's what we do. That's what we automatically do. That's what we of necessity do. J.C. Ryle says, in short then, to to be prayerless is to be without God, without Christ without grace, without hope, without heaven. It is to be on the road to hell. The habit of prayer is one of the surest marks of a true Christian. There is one respect in which God's children on earth are alike. They all pray. The first sign of life in a newborn infant is that it breathes. In the same way, the first act of the newborn Christian is to pray. It is our breath. So Jesus prays. And the people of Jesus, they pray. And if you never pray, you're not one of his. If you never pray, if you never turn your eyes toward God's, If you never acknowledge God, you're not a believer. Robert McShane said, what a man is in private before the Lord, that he is and no more. What a man is in private before the Lord, that he is and no more. So, so what are you in private? What are you in private before the Lord? And is it like this, that days go by, and weeks go by, and months go by, and between you and the Lord, there is silence? And not a word passes from your lips. One of the Puritans said, God has none of his children born speechless. When you're born again, the inevitable, the non-negotiable sign that you are truly in Christ is that you begin to pray. Jesus prays in all who belong to Jesus, will pray. 
Secondly, Jesus prays regularly. He prays regularly. I don't know if you notice that in verse 16, the word places is in the plural. He would withdraw to desolate places. One writer says, it was not one withdrawal, not one prayer. All is plural. The withdrawings were repeated. The wildernesses were more habitual than one. The prayers were habitual. Crowds were thronging and pressing him. Great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed. He had no leisure so much as to eat But he found time to pray. Jesus was always praying. And Luke has a a strong emphasis on the prayer life of the Lord Jesus. We have our text here in verse 16 where we are told that he was always withdrawing himself to pray. This was constant. The New King James renders verse 16, he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Luke 6, verse 12, And it came to pass in those days that he went out into the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Luke 9, 28, It came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up into the mountain to pray. Luke 11, verse 1, And it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place. Luke twenty two forty one, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. The Lord Jesus was always praying. He would regularly pray. He would always pray. Now the lesson for us is very clear. We ought to pray a lot. That's what Paul says, First Thessalonians five seventeen. Pray without ceasing. That's what the Lord Jesus taught us in Luke 18. It says that he taught them a parable to the effect that men ought always to pray and not to give up. And maybe there are things that oh, you've, you've experienced that oh, just take the edge off your prayer life and you begin to feel whether you question whether it's all worth it. Jesus says, no, men ought always to pray and not to give up. Colossians 4.2 says, continue steadfastly in prayer. And that continue steadfastly, it's a command, it's an imperative, it's not optional for us. Pray if you feel like it, pray if you think it does you any good. No, it's a command, so pray, and pray in an ongoing way. Continue steadfastly in in prayer. It's a present participle. This is something that you need to keep doing. And in keep on praying, we are simply following the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. So are are you a Christian who is intimately familiar then with the atmosphere around the throne of grace? You know, sometimes you walk into a home, maybe it's your own home or someone else's, and you walk in, you say, well, you know, each home has an aroma, doesn't it? You walk into your home, you go, this smells like my house. This is where I belong. This is my place. These are my people. Well, you feel the same way about the throne of grace, because you're always there. And you come into the presence of God, and there's an awe, and there's a reverence, but there's a, an at-home feeling. 
Because there's no other place like this. Are you like the Lord Jesus and you pray all the time? And you pray regularly? And you're at home there? You're at home there? And I'm conscious that when I say pray regularly, it's like, oh, I've got to make a schedule and I've got to, you know. But I'm saying, I think I'm saying something more profound than that. And that is that this is where you're at home. This is where you belong. At the throne. And so he's always there. And we're always there. We're like James the just. You know, there's a, a, a historian in the 4th century who records an account of James now, James is the James who wrote the book of James, and it's the same James who is half-brother of Jesus. And Eusebius is talking about um, the way the church was persecuted, and he's talking about how James was persecuted and how he died. But he has something interesting to say about James. Some of the things he says about James, well, we can't be trusted, but this is interesting. And he says of James... These words, and he was in the habit of entering alone into the temple and was frequently found upon his knees begging forgiveness for the people so that his knees became hard like those of a camel in consequence of his constantly bending them in his worship of God, asking forgiveness for the people. His knees became like the knees of a camel. Hard and rough because he was always praying. I'm not saying you need to be on your knees. My knees would not allow me to be on my knees. And we're talking about praying all the time. So how, in a metaphorical sense, how how are your knees? Are they like James? So Jesus prays, and Jesus prays regularly. Thirdly, Jesus prays because he needs help. Jesus prays because he needs help. Now, of course, Jesus prays because he loves his Father. He loves the Father and wants to spend time with the Father, and, and we love the Father, and we want to spend time with the Father. That's why we pray. I've... I've often quoted to you what McShane said. In his diary, he writes, I rose early to seek God and found him whom my soul loves. Who would not rise early to meet such company? I mean, who wouldn't want to spend time with the Creator and enjoy the privilege given to us by Jesus to call the Creator Father? Oh, he was our judge and his wrath was upon us. But Jesus interposed himself and Jesus took the wrath of God upon himself so that we might be forgiven and saved and be given the privilege to be calling God Father. So we wouldn't want to come day by day and hour by hour and say Father and enjoy the presence 
of the living God. Who wouldn't want to do that? And that's why we're so concerned about unbelievers. That's why we're concerned about our children. That's why we're concerned about people who don't know the Savior. Because we want them to be able to call God Father as well. We're not trying to spoil their lives and we're not trying to take away all the joy that they experience in this world. On the contrary, we want them to know real joy. We want them to know the unspeakable privilege and the almost unutterable joy of knowing God and calling God Father. That's why we're worried about you. Because God made you for himself. And you will never be happy. You'll never be at rest until you find your rest in God. Until you come to Christ for forgiveness. You call upon his name and ask him to save you. And then, as a saved man and a saved woman, day by day you come and you say, Father, hear my prayer. Oh, when Jesus prays, it's because he loves God. And we long for the day when you will pray because you love God, because you've been saved. And of course, Jesus prays even though he doesn't need help. And I said he prays because he needs help. And maybe there's something in your head, I hope, that said, wait a minute, that's not right. So, yes, he he prays even though he doesn't need help. Jesus doesn't need help because Jesus is God. And he has all the power he needs. But you see, Jesus prays because as our Savior, he lived a life that would provide a pattern for us. A pattern for us to follow. We read in Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 61 that the Savior that God would send, the Lord Jesus, would be strengthened by the Spirit. The Spirit would be poured out upon him, and the Spirit would provide him with the power that he needs to fulfill his ministry. So we read in the Gospels that the Spirit of God comes upon Jesus at the beginning of his ministry and gives him power to fulfill his ministry. And that's why in Acts chapter 10 verse 38 we read, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So that's how it was supposed to work out. The Messiah would come, Jesus would become man, the Spirit would come upon Jesus and give him the strength to do his ministry so that he can save us. And that's why Jesus prays, he's praying for help. So, for instance, let me give you an example of how this works. If you go over to Luke chapter 6, this is what's happening. Luke chapter 6. Verse 12 of Luke 6. In those days he went out to the mountain to pray. 
And all night he continued in prayer to God. Now, there are decisions that need to be made. There's a responsibility that needs to be undertaken. There is a task that Jesus has. And before he does it, what does he do? He spends the night in prayer. And then you come to verse 13. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. And then those apostles are named. So what's happening there? Well, before a responsibility is undertaken, before a choice is made, the son prays to the father. What's he praying about? Well, he's praying about the decisions. He's seeking help because the Messiah would fulfill his responsibilities enabled by the Spirit, not leaning on his own strength, he has infinite strength, but leaning upon the strength of the Spirit with whom he is endowed, and all of that will prove to be the example that the Christians will follow. We are sent into the world as well. How are we to fulfill our ministry? By the Spirit who was poured out upon us at Pentecost and who was given to us at our conversion. So the Lord Jesus goes and prays for help. The lesson is very clear. You and I need to pray for help as well. You and I need to come to God. We need to Cry out to God for help. Because you see, if the Lord Jesus goes to the Father for help, if he prays, we must. One writer says, and this one who sought retirement, that is, this one who withdrew to spend time with God, this one who sought retirement was the Son of God having no sin to confess, no shortcomings to deplore, no unbelief to subdue, no languor of love to overcome. Now, if it was part of the sacred discipline of the incarnate Son that he should observe frequent seasons of retirement, how much more is it incumbent, is it necessary for us, broken as we are, disabled by manifold sin, to be diligent, in the exercise of private prayer. If he needed to pray, how much more do we? And how much more must we? So what I'm doing is this. I'm urging you, you and me, I'm urging us to pray for help. Pray for ourselves. And pray for the church of Christ. I'm saying to you, we must plead for help. We must keep praying for help. We must increase our prayers for help. We must feel a sense of urgency in asking for help. We must cry out to heaven all the more for heaven to come down, for grace to be poured out. We must call upon God. We must cry out to God for him to make bare his arm. We must plead with heaven that God would intervene. Is there anything we need more desperately in our day than for God to intervene? Manifestly. Powerfully. Benevolently. God to intervene. 
plead with God. I'm saying plead with God. That he would come down and do glorious things, great things that we could not. Glorious things that would astonish us. We must plead for help. We must call upon God for help. You need help in sanctification. I need help in sanctification. You and I, we need help when it comes to sanctification. Spurgeon said, even as the moon influences the tides of the sea, even so does prayer influence the tides of godliness. You want to be godly? Do you want to be more like Jesus? Do you lament the fact that you're not like him as you would be? Has it already grieved your heart today that you're as sinful as you are? Pray for help. Pray with urgency for help. Bishop Ryle said, what is the reason that some believers are so much brighter and holier than others? I believe the difference in 19 out of 20 arises from different habits of private prayer. I believe that those who are not eminently holy pray little. And those who are eminently holy pray much. You and I need help. I want to be more like Jesus. I need help. And I believe you want to be more like Jesus. You need help. Plead for help. And the church, the church needs help. Last Wednesday at prayer meeting, Roger was praying that God would remove that God would move in in revival blessing. He was praying for he used the word unusual. When's the last time you prayed for unusual blessing? An unusual sense of the presence of God. An unusual outpouring of the Spirit of God upon his people. Praying for revival. Uh, praying for a stirring. And I'm urging you to pray in that way. Awake, O Lord, as in the times of old. Now we've read about the times of old. We've read about these things. We've heard about these things. We've been made familiar with how God has worked in times of old. And we want that in our day. Don't we? And I'm saying to you, please... Let's pray for that. Errol Hulse said, It is true that revival is the absolute prerogative of a sovereign God. Yet in a strange way, his purposes are joined to the prayers of his people. So, do we need to pray for help? D.L. Moody said, Every great movement of God can be traced back to a kneeling figure. So, will you 
be that kneeling figure. So we need to join together. We need to pray together. We need to cry out as a people of God for the church of Christ in our day. We need to together pray because Spurgeon is absolutely right. He said, brethren, we shall never see much change for the better in our churches in general till the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. So I'm pleading with you to pray for the church of Christ, all of us as a people, to be more and more men and women of prayer and pray for the church of Christ in our day. Pray for the church in Canada. Pray for the church in, in Ontario. Pray for the church across our land and pray that all over the country, prayer meetings in churches will be filled. You know, it's a sad thing that that's what we need to pray for first. But it is a thing that we need to pray for first. So let's pray that God will make his church a praying church. Give the church help to understand its absolute insufficiency and its utter dependence upon God. And pray for help so that God might drive us to our knees and the church of Christ at large be a praying church. We need to pray for help. We need to plead for help. Ian Bounds said, The life power and glory of the church is prayer. Without it, the church is lifeless and helpless. So pray. Fourthly, Jesus prays in days of trouble. Jesus prays in days of trouble. He prays all the time. He's always withdrawing. You can read Mark chapter 1 and you'll read there that Jesus was so busy And you'll read in verse 32 that he worked into the night. People were coming to him into the evening. And he was working and he was healing and he was ministering. And then you read the next day, verse 35, you read that he gets up early before the sun rises. And he goes off into the mountains to pray. The Lord Jesus is always praying. When he was confronted with challenges and when he was faced with decisions, he was praying. And then he prayed in the most... Desperate days of his life. He prayed in the midst of days that we would not want to face. And we read in Luke twenty-two forty-one that in the garden he prays. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. Saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And so in the garden he prays with Golgotha looming on the horizon. He prays. And then on the cross he prays. Father, forgive them. My God, why have you forsaken me? Father, into your hand I commend my spirit. He's praying on Good Friday. He's praying. In your day of trouble, you pray. 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to God who judges righteously. See, that's what prayer is. Prayer is 
entrusting yourself to God. Prayer is weakness leaning upon omnipotence. Prayer is a weak person coming to God and entrusting himself, entrusting herself into the the mighty arms of the everlasting Father. That's what prayer is. And that's what Jesus did. And that's what you and I do. In our days of trouble. In the days of affliction that inevitably come our way. And what an incredible thing to be able to have such a God to whom we may go. To be able, in the midst of whatever days of trouble come our way, we go to God. Because sometimes friends forsake us. And sometimes isolation is our lot in life. But we can always go to God. And we understand what the Israelites meant when they said, For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason, we may call upon him. Second Samuel 22.7 In my distress I called upon the Lord. I cried to my God. That's you and I. We can do that. Psalm 138 verse 3. When we were going through the When we were going through the Trinity debacle, the Lord gave me this verse. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. In your day of trouble, you call on the Lord. Psalm 50, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Because God says, look, I'm not only going to deliver you from the trouble or in the midst of it, but I'm going to enable you so often in the midst of it, to glorify me. This is how I'm going to answer. It's going to be astonishing. And so when you call upon the Lord, he will deliver you and he will enable you to glorify him in the midst of it. How do you glorify God? Well, you glorify him by remaining faithful. You glorify him by not harboring hard thoughts about God in the midst of your affliction. You glorify God in the midst of your affliction By being selfless. By, in the day of your trouble, being concerned about others. God helps so that that kind of thing takes place. God helps you in the day of your trouble by giving you patience. And by giving you endurance. And by enabling you to be an example to others. By giving you grace to minister to others. That's how God helps. This poor man cried out to the Lord, and the Lord heard him and delivered him out of all his troubles. Psalm 34, verse 5, verse 6. You probably know this hymn, Sweet Hour of Prayer. Sweet Hour of Prayer, Sweet Hour of Prayer. That calls me from a world of care and bids me at my Father's throne make all my wants and wishes known. The man who wrote that was a man named William Walford. Don't know much about him, but we know that he's blind. He was blind. He was a blind preacher, we're told. Some mystery around his life, but we believe at least that to be true. It struck me so interesting. What afflictions a blind man in 1800s England would have to deal with. But he writes about a sweet 
hour of prayer. No matter what your affliction, no matter what day of trouble you are called upon to endure, you can call upon the Lord. Follow, follow the Lord Jesus, who entrusted himself to his God. Do the same. Lastly, and very quickly, Jesus prays for God's glory. He prays for God's glory. We don't know much about what Jesus prayed when he withdrew. We're not told much about the details of what he prayed. And the Lord Jesus draws a veil of secrecy over that. He's not ostentatious in his devotions like the Pharisees. The Pharisees want you to know a great deal about them and their prayer life and them and what they give and them and how they fast. They, they want you to know all about that. Not Jesus. Occasionally, however, once in a while we get a glimpse into, into the sacred. John 17 is like that. Take some time this afternoon and read John 17. I don't have time to go into that right now. But you'll find in John 17, 1 to 5, Jesus is concerned about the glory of God. You'll find in John 17, verses 6 to 9, he's concerned about the people of God. The fact that they have troubles and they have needs. And so he prays for their security and their unity and their holiness and their usefulness. And then you'll find in John 17, verses 20 to 26, he's concerned about the people who don't know him, the people who must still hear the gospel, the people who must still come. He's concerned about that. And so essentially what our Lord is doing is this. He's praying to the Father, and he's praying that God may be glorified in the saving of souls and in the sanctifying of his people. That's what he's concerned about. And when he teaches us, in Luke chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 6, he is saying, my concerns and the burden of my prayers must be the concerns of your life and the burden of your prayers. So you must be praying about these things. Whatever else you pray for, these are your priorities that God be glorified in the saving of souls and in the sanctifying of his people. When you pray, say this. Well, that's the lesson for us. Pray about the same things Jesus prayed about. Let his burdens be your burdens. Ignore the noisy evangelicals out there. They're just clanging cymbals. And listen to what Jesus says and listen to what the Bible says about what the burden of your prayers ought to be and the great concerns of your life must be. It's the saving of souls. It's the lifting up of Jesus. It's the preaching of the unsearchable riches of Christ. It's waving the banner of the Lord Jesus. It's calling sinners to look to him. It's crying out to the lost to believe in him. It's showing a lost world that there's a savior. That's the burden of our prayers. And that's the great concern of our lives. That's why we're alive. That's why we're here. It's to rescue the perishing. 
That's what Jesus was praying about. That's what we will pray about. Because you see, like the Lord Jesus, we're concerned about you. If, if, if you're not a Christian, we're concerned about you because our Savior is. The Savior weeps over the lost. The Savior is concerned to see you one to himself. He says to you, why will you turn? He says to you, why don't you come? He says to you, why will you die in your sins? He says to you, there's life and there's forgiveness. So come. And I will give you rest. He says to you. And we say to you. Believe. And you and I. Will live. To shine the light. Of Jesus. In this world. Let's pray. Father we plead. That you will save souls. That you will win the lost. And you will draw them to Christ. We plead that you will make us more and more like Christ so that the burdens of our Savior will be our burdens and the concerns expressed in prayer will be our concerns. Help us so to follow him that we might glorify him in all that we are and in all that we do. And it's for his name that we pray.